0: Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Rain, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned, we're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Welcome, everybody, to another week here at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. This week, we feature the historic saddle-making company, Billy Cook. In this conversation, we sit down with the new owner, Adam Trank, who shares an incredible story of some of his first experiences horseback sitting in a Billy Cook saddle. And all these years later, he finds himself the owner of the genuine Billy Cook Harness and Saddle Company. Throughout the episode, you'll better understand who Adam is, the storied history of Billy Cook, and what Adam has in store for the future of this company. For more information, you can visit GenuineBillyCook.com. That's G-E-N-U-I-N-E-B-I-L-L-Y-C-O-O-K.com. Now, should you find the content of this episode valuable, please share it with a friend. Additionally, your five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice would mean the world to us. You can find us on both Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. We hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is our conversation with the owner of Billy Cook Harness and Saddle Company. Adam Trank.
1: So I bought the Billy Cook Harness and Saddle Company in December uh, from the estate of Billy after he passed away uh, in October of last year. And my priorities for 2020 are sort of for me to learn the business and the industry to really get a good idea how we operate and to try to figure out a way to do things a little bit more efficiently because the company hadn't been operating profitably for Quite some time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and then parallel with that or concurrent with that, I also want to bring the company into the 21st century. Um, there had been a Facebook page prior to my involvement with the company, but there had been no; it was poorly managed, um, really hardly managed, and there was no social media presence other than that, and the company didn't even have its own website. So, uh, those are sort of my two objectives for 2020, and then you know beyond, we would like to uh, you know just continue to build high Quality uh, saddles at an affordable price. Yeah. And, um, you know, from there, potentially expand our product line beyond just horse tack, but other accessories that people might appreciate using the tools and equipment and skill set of our staff.
0: It's great to hear you take on take on the name and take on the brand and take on the legacy of, right? Because Billy Cook is such a synonymous name with saddle making over the years. And, and for that history to live on now, right? And continue and not only continue at the rate they were going, but try different avenues and, and get more modern with it. Because it, it, it's a huge hurdle in the Western industry as a whole, right? So many people are... Trying to be the jack of all trades and do all parts of a business that, that we as Western entrepreneurs offer oftentimes come up short, whether it be, you know, marketing or sales or content development. So for you to come in and step in and kind of help foster some of that in the company while maintaining the legacy is pretty it's gonna be an exciting endeavor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about it. I mean, I don't know anything about how to build a saddle. I know how to sit in one fairly well, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I've, I never built a saddle, and I don't pretend to know how. Um, i I've, I've worked as an attorney for almost ten years and I've done a lot of consulting and strategic development work for businesses across a variety of industries and uh, helped those people be successful, help those businesses grow and I, when I found out about Billy's passing having had uh, ridden in his saddles my whole life, I got curious about what was going to happen with the company and I was sort of at a crossroads myself thinking about um you know wanting to do something like this for myself anyway and after thinking about it uh sort of realized the opportunity there and uh you know began to have discussions with the family and the attorney who was representing Billy's estate um and I think I got lucky because the people who uh, had been working for him, some of them have been there for as long as 40 years are all still on board. And so I have those talents who, and these people who are able to really build saddles and make tack and make quality goods. I mean, these people are true artisans, you know, It's incredible. Um, but but I can come in and, you know, help modernize the company's operations and bring it into the 21st century in a way that it hadn't before. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm excited about that.
0: Yeah, for so let's sure. let's uh, I want to kind of cover a little bit of your history, who you are, and kind of your your position in this Western world, and then we'll cover a little bit of B- Billy Cook's history. So let's just start with you and your experience with horses and horsemanship, or or this Western way of life.
1: Sure. Well, I grew up in the great cowboy state of New Jersey.
0: Believe it or not, <laughs> <laughs> deep Western roots, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: my grandfather before I was born, had been uh, working in the thoroughbred racing industry. And he had had my father and my uncle horseback since they were little boys. And so my family did grow up with horses, even though we were on the East Coast. And uh, just always around it. My, when I, Before I was born, the first saddle I ever saw in was a saddle that my grandfather had bought from my dad. He actually bought two Billy Cook saddles from Billy Cook himself in Greenville, Texas in 1975. Oh, that's awesome. And so I remember as a little kid, you know, sitting in front of my dad's lap with that big old horn on those old Billy Cook ropers just like yeah. about the sides of a dinner plate. And I remember <laughs> Billy Cook, Greenville, Texas, on that horn. So I mean that's sort of how I got my start. Cut, fade. I got into I mean I always rode, got into high school, started getting into a little bit of trouble with my friends and uh, my dad decided probably a good idea if I I'd get out of New Jersey for the summers when school's out of session, so I didn't end up in jail. Yeah. And uh through some of his resources and friends, got me got in touch with a guy named Zane Davis who had done an apprenticeship with Monty Roberts who had been in the horse training world for years before that. Yeah. And uh Zane agreed to take me on I think more as kind of slave labor than anything else, but he
0: did he did uh, it's all up for teach. interpretation, right? Yeah exactly <laughs> internship, he, slave
1: labor, he, I don't know. He he did teach me an awful lot about training horses and cowboying and that sort of thing and, and the Western lifestyle that I never would have been exposed to if I hadn't had that experience. And yep. So I learned how to start Colts with Zane and uh then went back home to New Jersey for the next school year and You know, ended up going back and doing this apprenticeship thing with him for five more summers. And so I did that until I was uh, through college or or just about to graduate college, I guess. Mm So that last summer after graduation, I only went up for a week because I had to get a job. Um, Anyway, making a long story short, horses have sort of always been my passion. Um, It's sort of how I unwind. And I do attribute everything positive uh, that I've ever come across in my life. Uh, to the work ethic that I picked up just from being around horses and from the uh, dedication and the sort of stick to itiveness that I learned working with horses and being around horses. So uh, that's always been my biggest hobby and, you know, sort of it's the lifestyle that I live.
0: It's funny how some of those early experiences, right, they just kind of, they truly do brand you, right, in the way you kind of take on life. And um, I have a similar history. Uh started out with my grandfather. My grandfather's a cowboy out of Missouri. Uh, we spent a lot of time when I was a young kid in and around horses and cattle and things of that sort uh, My life took me in a completely separate direction for the lion's share of my life and and I kind of dedicated myself to baseball for the for the longest time but then again I find myself you know uh I just didn't feel like I was getting the most out of life and and I was kind of inundated with a lot of stress and pressure and got back into horses and it's funny how it doesn't take much to kind of dust some of those those boots off right or some of those old roots or old culture off and and you find yourself right back in it. and it's incredible the blessings that, that the horse provided me in my life and i profess to everybody that that i don't think that i could ever repay the horse for what they've given me with the number of days that i i have left on this on this earth
1: well it's true i mean they teach you a lot of very valuable lessons um mm-hmm. you know the work ethic comes along with it if you're going to live be around horses have them live in new yard, you got to Make sure you come home at night so you can feed them, and then you got to wake up early in the morning so you can feed them and clean their pens. And so that sort of gives your life a rhythm, and uh, that's important if you're going to be successful in school or in business or whatever else it is that you're going to do. You sort of have to have that rhythm. And I think, you know, when I was going through college and graduate school. That really helped keep my feet on the ground. Yeah, you know, in, in a way that you know, not that I have, other, you know, I have friends from college, and all of them have ended up to be successful, also. But it took them a little bit longer to find themselves. I think as a consequence. It's of true, that. you know, they're and not, I did, they're not having
0: that. I didn't find I didn't find a clear definition of life balance probably until my late twenties, right, early thirties, because. Mm-hmm. At that phase of life, you're you know, your early twenties you're finishing school, mid twenties, you're finishing school, and then you want to cut your teeth and make a name for yourself. Sometimes you don't look up and take that breath of fresh air and uh, you find yourself a few years down the road and, and and a lot of life's weight has been bored on your shoulders. And for me, the horse was able or it was an opportunity for me to provide a little relief in that. And sure it's crazy it's crazy how much more I'm doing with my life now than in that phase of life when I was overwhelmed. And yeah. it's because I have that life balance right I have something that recharges the batteries at the end of every day and something to provide a little bit more more life in the life tank.
1: Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting you put it that way because I agree I think that they not only when you're with the horse and either riding or even just feeding and cleaning out that for me, it is restorative. yeah um, But then just knowing that you have to do that even when you're not with them, Giving your life that structure allows you to, you know, you've restored the batteries, but you're also, it's propelling you forward those times during the day when you're, you know, engaged in other pursuits. So it's it's, it's been been great for me, for sure.
0: Yeah, the comfort of consistency almost, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Good stuff. So let's talk a little bit about Billy Cook's saddle reason. I mean, obviously you talked about your, your first experiences sitting on the, the swells of that saddle, looking down at that huge dinner plate saddle horn, but uh, let's talk about your known history with Billy Cook. And then I'd like to cover kind of how the two merge your history, of Billy Cook's Saddlery, and, and the acquisition of 2019.
1: Sure. So uh, my, uh, my history with it. So I started out as a little kid riding with my dad who had a horse, you know, before I was born um and you know from as a toddler sitting in the saddle with him and then uh you know through middle school and high school um you know before I went and did those apprenticeships in Montana um I rode a lot mostly on the weekends my dad had a horse that he boarded and I would go there you know either ride his horse or we'd rent a horse from the from the stables and then when I was a freshman in high school I got my first horse that I could call my own and uh I bought a saddle for $400, a brand new Billy Cook saddle at one of these uh, livestock auctions before they sell the animals in sell pack in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And I bought that. So I still have it to this day. That's like 21 years ago. That's cool. Yeah. And so, uh, I broke a lot of Colts on that, on that saddle. I've been bucked out of that saddle a handful of times. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's been there for me. I've got, a, I've, I have a couple other rigs that I've accumulated over the years, but, um, I always just had an affinity for the brand and mm-hmm. I honestly didn't know too much about it until six or seven years ago. I was on the city council here, town council here in cave Creek, Arizona. We were trying to figure out what to do with this corridor that we have along carefree highway. Um, it turns out my vision for it didn't come to fruition. Uh, it is now sort of looks like generic America and there's a grocery store and a chase bank and an auto zone. But I thought it would be cool if we had had some, you know, sort of authentically American, you know, Western iconic industry there. And I thought it'd be cool if we had a saddlery or, you know, our saddle shop there. So that was my first contact with Billy Cook. I reached out and I spoke to him on the phone and said, you know, would you would you be interested in opening up a satellite operation out here in Cave Creek, Arizona? Uh, And. He was very gracious, of course, flattered that I had, you know, such an affinity for his products. But, you know, he's, so, you know, son, I'm old, and, you know, I appreciate it, but that's not in the cards for me. Yeah. And that was that was pretty much the only real conversation I ever had with him one on one. And just when I became aware of his passing, you know, it was just an interesting time in my life. I was sort of looking for something to do with myself in addition to practicing law. Um, I, had, I had been doing a consulting thing with my family's business on the East Coast uh, and sort of taking a backseat role in that the summer prior. So uh, there was bandwidth, if you will, for me to want to do something else.
2: Yeah. And
1: when I found out that he passed, I didn't exactly connect the dots immediately. Um, took a couple of weeks for me to, re- to, to realize, hey, there's an opportunity here. And then I just reached out, got in touch with the attorney who was representing his estate and kind of the rest is history.
0: It's incredible to see, kind of see things come come full circle, right? How as a young child, some of your first experiences were with a Billy Cook saddle, and here you are now uh, buying Billy Cook in in 2019, and and have this new vision of what you would like to instill and and develop in the legacy of.
1: Yeah, no, it's surreal for sure, and uh, you know, I t- my grandfather's still around. He's uh, 90 years old, and you know. He just thinks it's the coolest thing because, you know, he introduced the brand to the family before yeah. uh, I was even born, you know, yeah. eight years before I was born. So, yeah. in fact, I took my dad and my grandfather and my Aunt Abigail, my Uncle Jeff passed away a couple of years ago. But I took them out to uh, Sulphur, Oklahoma to see the factory <clears throat> in early February. And uh, that was just such a cool moment, you know, for that to come full circle. like
0: that. Yeah, what an experience, right, to, to ride the product yeah. and see – or has actually produced for so many years. Yep. So many years. Now, I want to touch on, I know Billy Cook has had the brand itself, right, has had kind of a storied history. And it's interesting now that an attorney ends up acquiring it. But there probably could have been the use or the needed for an attorney very early on that would have saved the Cook family a lot of headache. Let's kind of touch on the story of Billy Cook Saddles and, and kind of some of the challenges that it has faced as a brand over the years.
1: Sure. Well, it started out in 1953. Um, <clears throat> Billy Cook had started out making saddles you know, as a, as a teenager, and then he ended up in the Army. And when he got home from the Army, he came home to Texas, and he started the Billy Cook Saddle Shop in 1953. So he started building saddles, and it wasn't long before he sort of, for lack of a better way to describe it, adopted the, uh, the assembly line method to the production of saddles, which is something that nobody had ever done before in the saddle-making industry. Mm-hmm. You know, for hundreds of years, one man built the saddle from, you know, the, after maybe he outsourced the tree, but then one guy would cut the leather, one guy would tool the leather, one guy would sew the skirts, one guy would assemble everything. Yeah. And it was just that same guy who built the saddle from beginning to end. Well, that's not super efficient because if one man working, it's going to take several weeks to put that deal together. Yeah, very much if, so. So um, Billy Cook sort of pioneered the production saddle uh, industry and uh, over many years he grew that shop to being able to do, you know, a couple dozen saddles a week with, you know, dozens of workers. And uh, my understanding is he got involved in the sometime in the seventies after the business was somewhat mature with uh, the pots, a guy named Bill Potts with Potts Longhorn. And, uh, I don't really know the details, and at the time, I don't even know that I was alive yet, but I was certainly very young if I was. And like I mentioned to you, I, I didn't come across this as a business venture until just you know a couple months ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, my understanding and the history of talking to the family and the people who've been around is that the company sort of overreached and collapsed. They have uh, built up too much of an infrastructure. And so the uh, the company went under, and so Billy Cook had been building Billy Cook saddles out of Greenville, Texas, through the early 80s when this all occurred. And they got into some trouble, had some tax debt and some other issues. And the bank ended up foreclosing on the assets of the what was, was the Potts Longhorn saddle company that Billy worked at and built his saddles out of, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think my understanding, again, is that – and I could be wrong – but that Billy sort of ran the shop for Potts Longhorn and for the other brands in exchange for having the infrastructure there for him to build his saddles out of there also. So, was sort yep. of a loose arrangement. I don't think it was ever papered formally, but, um, so anyway, the company ends up going under, it's got this tax debt and some other issues and the bank forecloses on the assets and, uh, those assets on some piece of paper somewhere, uh, indicated the name Billy Cook saddlery was one of those assets. But there was no, no, never any formal agreement that anybody had the rights to use Billy Cook's name other than Billy Cook himself. So in the late 80s, Billy decides he's going to have a go at it again, and he, uh, you know, I guess not very long, much time passed, maybe a year or two, between the time that Potts Longhorn went under and, and was foreclosed on by the bank, you know, all of its assets, and Billy opened up his own shop. And then, uh, 19 and 91... Billy moved his shop from Greenville, Texas, to Sulphur, Oklahoma, where it is today, and uh, you know, just sort of continued doing his thing. And the reasons that he moved to Sulphur, Oklahoma, are not necessarily relevant to this particular story. Mm-hmm. At some point in time, the Simco Saddle Company acquired the assets of Potts Longhorn from this bank, and then began uh, producing saddles using the name Billy Cook Saddlery, despite it having no affiliation with Billy. And this was a point of some contention to Billy and his family for a long time. And I, one of the things that I got when I took over the company was some old letters, correspondence between Billy's attorney and the attorney of that company. Uh, and in the end, there was never any agreement. Like Billy Cook himself sort of lacked the resources and the sophistication to put an end to the improper use of what I, what really is his trademark because in 1991, after moving to South Oklahoma, he did register a trademark, federal trademark for himself. So, you know, it's kind of sad because he, he had built a brand for, you know, 35, 40 years that somebody else got to capitalize on for much of the last 30 years. And frankly, and I say this, you know, as objectively as possible, the Billy cook Saddlery products that were manufactured by what, what ultimately became the action company. It's an inferior product. It doesn't use the same quality leather. It's not built by hand with the same degree of care as the actual, you know, genuine Billy cook products out of sulfur had been for the last 30 years. And I think that hurt his, his image in the, uh, in the, you know, equestrian goods marketplace. But, um, we're trying to put an end to that now, trying to work that out with the action company. And, uh, you know, we'll see where that all goes.
0: It's interesting because that's kind of been one of the more popular, I guess, talking points when it comes to Billy Cook's salary, right? Is that whenever you're shopping, you got to make sure it's that genuine Billy Cook. Yep. Right. Because, because of the threat of the counterfeit and, and it's tough because in the saddle market, there's any number of saddle makers and any number of quality of saddles. Right. But, for him to create such an incredible product and then to be i'm going to use undercut but there's probably a better word to be undercut by potentially counterfeit product um diluting the quality of his name and the quality of his material you know it's it is a sad story it really is
1: well it's a sad story um but it's and you know there's two ways to look at it right and i think i try to see the positive everything. I mean, you know, mimicry is the highest form of flattery.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, they continued to build. This company bought those assets, uh, you know, from from the bank. And they felt like they got a pot of gold that they were able to capitalize on the name Billy Cook because he did have a reputation of such high-quality products yeah. um, for yeah. such a long time. Yeah, And, you know, while I know that it was a thorn in his side while he was around, just based on speaking to some of the people who'd worked with him for a long time, who continue to work for the company uh today and as you know his family in the estate if that hadn't happened there there might there might have been less notoriety for him in the marketplace because he never did spend a lot of energy or a lot or have a good marketing strategy if you will i mean Billy, you know my again i only met the man over the phone one time but he was a, a tremendous saddle maker and a hell of a nice guy but not a great businessman Mm -hmm. and only because he sort of created the industry did he have any notoriety. And if this other company hadn't been out there making things under his name, he might not have himself been able to make, um, you know, enough, you know, to, to service the marketplace for people to even know who he was. And so while it's certainly, they knocked off his name and the quality of the product is not as good. I think it helped keep him relevant. In some way, shape, or form, if you try and see the good and the bad, yeah, um, and, it's an interesting you know, perspective. Yeah, and so I, you know, and also if that hadn't happened, maybe I wouldn't be sitting here, you no. know, in some in some roundabout way. Um, maybe that, although that, that it, it it would have impeded his, and although it would have impeded his success in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, the company never did really grow with the times it didn't never had a website never sort of became it it didn't do anything to try and stay relevant and i don't think the action company frankly did either much in the way of marketing since the early 2000s but because of the sort of controversy or the rivalry between the genuine billy cook and the other you know billy cook salary greenville texas people talk about it yeah so
0: yeah yeah it's true it's true and and yeah, like you talked about, right? So much of life, there's always a lesson to be learned. Oftentimes we don't know what that lesson is or the relevance of that lesson, but um, you know, it's it's a tough part because so much of life, especially in the Western world, is done on these these handshake deals, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, not to say that this other company had ill intent, but when things aren't spelled out on paper and aren't crystal clear and left for interpretation, you know, the, the lines get blurred, right? And people start tone yeah. in that gray area and and it does create headache, and it does create issues, and it does create tension.
1: Well, it's clear to me, you know, I don't know if their intent had any malice other than their own benefit. Right? Yeah. I mean, I don't yeah. think they necessarily were trying to hurt Billy as much as they were just trying to help themselves. But, uh, you know, the world is not a fair place. No. And, uh, you Heck know, no. You look at it as a case study and try to avoid the similar pitfall going forward. And, you know, to some extent, like I said, if you got to take it with a grain of salt and try and see the good and the bad there, I mean, he was so successful. Somebody wanted to knock off his name,
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know, Ain't and, that the truth. And,
1: and by virtue of that, it, w- it gave some, the market, something to talk about whenever the name came up, you know, is it a genuine Billy cook from Sulphur, Oklahoma? Or is it a Billy cook salary, Greenville, Texas? Yeah, Is this the real a deal or not? Kind of kept, kind of keeps it relevant in a yeah. way.
2: Yeah.
1: So, you know, I, 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 I don't want to see that company continuing to make the products. And like I said, we're trying to work it out. But, you know, it is what it is. And that's something that we just going to have to navigate around.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So now I kind of want to develop and build on. You talk about Billy Cook developing almost the production line style of developing and building a saddle. So let's talk about the infrastructure and what it entails because it truly is a handful of people that are making Billy Cook saddles today. But each has their own kind of specialized skill set right or part in that process
1: yep so we have two divisions we, we build saddles obviously that's our biggest division and we have a tack division which builds what the industry refers to as strap goods you know mm-hmm. head stalls mm-hmm. reins breast collars cinches that sort of thing and uh we've got a total of 17 people working in the factory um <clears throat> some of them are building the strap goods and others are building saddles and we've got two people who are cutting leather for both departments and so, um, if you sort of follow the construction process from beginning to end, uh, we do not manufacture trees in house. We get our trees from a variety of sources, um, some domestically and some from Mexico and the trees, you know, the, the tree just for your listeners out there is obviously the framework, which saddle is built around much like the, um, the, the you know, the framing when you frame out a house before you put the plumbing and the electric and, the um drywall on right you first you got to have something to build on around so the saddle tree uh is brought in you know and then we have get these sides of leather which are just these giant tanned hides, and those get cut as necessary to match up with the type of saddle that we're going to build and you cut out the skirts and the housing and the seat and the fenders uh and then the leather that's going to wrap the pommel and the cannel And then uh, those pieces of leather are are then go to someone who tools them, depending on the type of saddle you're building. That may just be a border stamp, uh, maybe, you know, quarter stamp, meaning just like sort of the bottom of the fenders and the corners of the the housing and the skirts, or it could be half or full tool. And it may be, uh, you know, basket weave or waffle stamp uh, or barbed wire or you know, we do floral and oak leaf tooling is some stuff that Billy has historically been famous for. I mean, just absolutely beautiful floral tooling coming out of our show, out of our factory and into our showroom. Um, and so uh, as those leather pieces are being tooled, the tree is being prepared um, and the horn is being wrapped and the ground seat is being built. And usually it's about a two day process to get all the leather tooled by, you know, maybe two or three people will have their hands on those parts for the saddle and to have the uh, ground seat and the horn put in. <clears throat> Once that's done, uh, the, everything that needs to be sewn together gets sewn together. So, for example, the uh, skirt leathers are sewn. The uh, skirt, you know, has the sheepskin. You know, then somebody stitches them together and does all the sewing that needs to be done and then they go back to the saddle makers who did the horn wrapping and building the ground seat to be completely assembled. And then they go to a,
0: uh,
1: a finishing line where they're oiled and the contours are put on and the stirrups are put on and then they're ready to ship.
0: You know, it's incredible with this production line style of building a saddle. Um, and I say production line, right. Cause everybody's got their specialty and then it all comes together to make a complete saddle at the end. Um, you know, historically custom saddles take, i mean several months some guys have waiting lists that are a year plus right so uh for billy cook to be able to produce such a quality saddle right in in a relatively uh quick time frame uh, is pretty innovative not only for the time in which you know he was doing it in the late 70s 80s 90s you know when he was kind of in his heyday um but it's obviously a style that is proven successful today and and there's not the compromising quality in it than you would think with an assembly line style saddle where they're just, hey, whatever's got the best rate on a lot of hides, let's bring those in. You know, you guys are still shopping quality hides and you're still yeah, shopping we, quality material.
1: We do a lot with oak leather, yeah. which is some of the best leather. Yep. Some of the best leather that, that you can find in the world, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all tanned right here in the United States. I think it's in St. Louis, Missouri. I, think I, it's I believe far. so. Um, anyway. And we, and we just try to use the highest quality products uh, that we can, and we try and deliver you know, a, product at a, a finished product at an affordable price for people. Um, every, nobody in our line, you know, in our factory is dispensable. Everybody sort of has their job, and everybody who works there to this day was trained by Billy Cook himself. And what's interesting is, is this industry evolved. You know, he sort of was the father of this industry, Billy was. And like I said, he was, he had a reputation for being a heck of a saddle builder and a really nice guy, but not a great businessman. He trained up literally dozens of people in this method who would actually had worked with him over the years, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And those folks have now gone out and are, you know, running saddle companies that are the competing brands out there. And they have taken over. A greater share of the marketplace, not just because they know how to build the saddles, but because, you know, while Billy was at, you know, sort of setting his ways and up in years and not using the internet and not doing the things necessary to stay relevant with the market, these guys were doing that. And so now you've got. The Martin salaries and the Cactus salaries and the yeah. you know yeah. and the Todd's I think it's Jeff Smith and Todd Sloan's and those those guys and they all build wonderful products but they've taken a, a bunch of the market share away from Billy Cook prior to my uh, stepping onto the scene and I'm hoping because we are a legacy brand because we do have the story uh, behind us and and the history behind us uh, that with just a little bit of tweaking in our in, in our production facilities and artists theres try and save some costs in the way that we do things. Cause prior to my coming in, there had been a little bit of waste. Yeah. Um, um, and just, you know, trying to recover, you know, like for example, when you're cutting saddles, you, you know, you're trimming a hide and there's, there's ways in which you can place the patterns and trim so that you can maximize the scrap and then be able to use that scrap leather to build the head stalls, breast collars, you know, cinches, maybe purses or wallets or belts or things like that. Um, you know, rather than just throwing it out and uh, you know, that all will go to our bottom line because our cost you know, basis is in the hide already, whether or not we make more out of it or not.
2: Oh, that's true. Uh, yeah.
1: So, uh, and then just, you know, doing some marketing and trying to get the make the name relevant again, because it's very widely known and very well respected, but it hasn't been relevant for a long time. And so we just want to kind of, kind of do that with this company and help, you know, keep the good people who work with us employed and just, You know, make products that make people feel good.
0: Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I really think it's going to be exciting because, like you talked about, it's a very stored history, very, very well-known in the Western industry, right, as being one of the foundational saddle makers uh, as far as getting a name out there. But to, to have that kind of deep breath taken, right, stand on the sidelines for a bit, reset your priorities, and then get out there and make a run at it, it's going to be exciting to see what this becomes. Sure.
1: Well, and I'm super pumped because it's an industry that I love. Yeah, you know, if I'm doing yeah. something that I love and it's going to open doors and, and for you know experiences and to meet people who share common interests, and uh, I'm just super excited about it. Yeah, so.
0: yeah. So earlier you talked about uh, earlier in your story you talked about kind of the acquisition of Billy Cook was something that you did for you. Where were you at? Why was there a need for you to kind of reinvest in yourself per se, or or maybe take on a new challenge or a new endeavor in your regard?
1: Well, I mentioned uh, my grandfather's ninety. And I mentioned that I had been working for with my family for some number of years, or probably almost six years, uh, until last June, pretty closely. Um, when Bill de Blasio was elected mayor of New York, I found myself uh, having just gotten done to that office on the town council in Cuth Creek and really, uh, working as a uh, an associate of the law office in Arizona. And uh, after getting off the council, I kind of had some... Some more spare time, if you will, know, some bandwidth that had opened up. And my grandfather was up against a problem with this um, de Blasio character getting elected mayor because it had gone from Bloomberg, who was a very uh, trained business administration, to de Blasio, who's sort of clamping down on things. And so uh, I helped my family out and got very involved in the business. And then over a period of a couple of years, there were some differences of opinions, and it became clear to me that I was really investing in something, even though it was my family's, it wasn't mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was to, not necessarily to the detriment of my law practice, because I continued to live in Arizona. I traveled back and forth to New York about one week a month, um, and still had a, a vibrant legal practice working in the... Uh, believe it or not, the medical marijuana space of all things and the equestrian and agricultural spaces as an attorney and you know, doing a bunch of other stuff for people across a variety of industries and got clients in the pharmaceutical business clients have car washes and land developers and real estate developers and commercial landlords I mean I represent all kinds of folks yeah but um you know again you that was sort of, it 's a career, but it 's not it wasn't i wasn 't building something for myself. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. I was always I was putting in my all of my energies into other people being successful, and I really felt like I had the skill set um, and the drive to do something on my own. So I was sort of—I I can't say fishing for that. I wasn't actively looking for it, but I, in the back of my mind, I yearned for it.
0: Yeah, definitely open and, to it.
1: Yeah, and then um, when I found out about Billy passing away, like I said, I didn't connect the dots immediately. Uh, I just you know marinated on it. Actually, what really happened was I found out Billy passed away probably about a week after he died in the, in the second week of October, and then in the third week of October I got in a horse wreck and I broke my hand. So that disrupted my you know my daily routine here at the house in terms of cleaning pens and riding horses yeah. and doing things before and after work. So I had more time from the computer and just googling around trying to figure out what was going to happen with the company. And that, you know, more out of curiosity than anything, when I found out that his family was going to shut it down, that you know, the company hadn't been profitable for several years and uh, his kids were all grown and didn't have any involvement in the business and didn't really have any interest in running it, I, that was when the bell went off. And I thought, well, if we can keep the people working there, working there, and if they want to keep working there, um, I think I can make something out of it. And that was when we got the dialogue rolling.
0: That's got to be exciting now, that first phone call, that first email
1: well it was it was (laughs) (laughs) i'll never forget it so god bless her i work very closely now with a woman named ginger cornell who's been Billy's cfo for like 30 years and that was my first call was to her it took me it took me like almost two weeks to get a hold of her i spoke to her for the first time in i think it was early november and i called her up and i told her what my thoughts were and uh she has confessed to me since then that she didn't know if I was for real or not. <laughs> you know, she didn't know what to make of me. So she told me she'd get back to me, and then she never did. But yeah. one thing you gotta know about me is, you know, I don't have any quit in me. And I, when I get an idea in my head, I pursue it till it's dead. So yeah. I didn't hear back from her and I just started calling her like every third day until, you know, it took another two weeks before she finally entertained what I had to say. That's funny. <laughs> Maybe, seriously, yeah. And uh ultimately what happened was I was going up to Las Vegas for the NFR just i go to the NFR every year in fact I mentioned Zane who I had to press for his father Sean Davis had been the general manager of the NFR for like 30 some years oh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and so I get rodeo tickets from Sean Davis and so I was going up there and I told Junior I was going there and I said why don't we meet person if you're going to the rodeo also and we'll try and see if we can make a deal because the Family really only had enough money in the bank to keep people on payroll through December. So there was sort of a, some sense of urgency. Yeah, decisions that had, to had to be made. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I sat down with her at the cowboy Christmas deal at the Las Vegas Convention Center and we spent probably half a day just sitting there at that table going over the numbers. She brought a bunch of financial data up with her and talking about, you know, potential deal structure. And then, uh, it was That was on a Saturday, and then the next Monday, she got me in touch with um, the attorney who was representing Billy's estate, who I had talked to once or twice before, but not substantively, because the family really trusted Ginger to, to put things together, and um, then we started pushing paper, and we got a deal, a, a contract written and done, and we signed it uh, within a week, wow, and we closed yeah, very fast, and, and we closed on out. December 27th of last
0: year. Wow! And here we are. Here we are. Yeah, that is awesome, man. Awesome. Who'd think you'd go to Las Vegas and end up coming back with a saddle company? I know.
1: Uh, well, I would have thought it. I was, and I, if I could put myself back in that mindset, <clears throat> I really did get obsessed with it uh, when I had the broken hand and the and, and sort of the bell went off that this was something that might be possible. I I literally, there wasn't a minute of the day that went by that I didn't think about it. And, you know, I ended up putting together like a a vision board board where I was cutting out pictures of things and, you know, just literally, I mean, for lack of, it was was a a healthy obsession. It was not unhealthy, but it was like, you know, how can we make this work? How can we structure this so that it's good for Billy's family? How can we make sure that we don't have to, you know, shrink the payroll? Uh, How much money are we going to need to do this? I mean, I was just always... Yeah. as if I had taken on a big uh, project for a client um, I just dove right in and uh, it so far it's working out good I mean if it wasn't for the coronavirus I think we'd, we'd be rocking and rolling yeah, I say, so right now that's
0: almost everybody on hold man. that's ridiculous yeah. I understand why but it's uh, it's tough yeah.
1: it is yeah I mean the only solace that I take in that is it's affecting everybody and I'm not you know I'm not a quitter I'm not going to no, really get me no. down um, we, we did make the tough decision that we were going to shut the factory down last week. Um, and we're hoping that those, the PPP loans at the federal government will come through so that we can keep everybody on payroll. Cause we're not, a, we're not cash rich. Yeah. Um, unless it comes through, we're, we're going to have some more difficult decisions to make, but I'm confident that it will. I spoke with my banker as recently as yesterday and, uh, those needs can do. We'll keep everybody on payroll, even though they're not working. We'll get them back to work as soon as we can. And we've got orders to fill. We've got saddles to make, you know,
0: that's awesome. What a, what a blessing though, in all honesty, right. To keep, keep people's paychecks showing up. And, and I know the production's not there on the backside, but this is, you know, like you talked about, right. This is unforeseen circumstance for everybody in the world. And this yep. is new to everybody and it's foreign to everybody. And we're all facing our own challenges, uh, in different regards or different levels. But, uh, how incredible to have that opportunity to have a little, little money set aside and, you know, maybe get some loans coming in to help, help fund these paychecks for a while. And, and I think like I've, I've used the time to kind of reset, right. And place some emphasis on priorities and, and kind of develop some of the structure as far as what the plan is going to be the rest of the year. Um, and we'll make a run at it, you know, And, and, and it's funny you talk about, you know, sitting out with a broken hand and starting to develop this fascination with, with, uh, acquiring this, this company, but it's just a testament to, if you, if you make something a priority in your life, right. And you start considering all vested interests and motivations for all parties and, and you're doing so with good intent, right. There's not much that, that is impossible to do.
1: No, I, I'm a firm believer that, uh, you know, anything that is feasible can be done. It's just a function of whether or not you are willing to put in the effort to get it done.
0: No, I I joke with people all the time. I say, if if there's a will, there's a way. But it's true. If you want to make it happen, make it happen. It's going to take hard work, and it's probably going to take exceptional work, work that you're either not willing to do or the majority of people aren't willing to do. It's going to take some creativity. It's going to take some funding. But um, if you want it, go get it. Right. I
1: think that honestly comes from, at least in in me, it comes from my experience working with horses. I mean, you can't get excited yeah. Right. Yeah. You can't get, let your emotions get the better of you. You cannot ever contemplate defeat because the minute that you begin to even consider that it's possible that you, that you're going to be defeated, you will be, yeah. you know, horses are incredibly intuitive. Um, they can read your energy better than, you know, they probably know what you're feeling better than you do, Yeah. you know, and, yeah. uh, and they, they're incredibly fast to act. So you have to become a master of your emotions and, uh, You have to be, you know, able to see the forest through the trees, as they say, uh, when when you're working with horses. And so I've adapted that skill set to my work as an attorney and to pursuing this endeavor. Um, You know, just what's my main objective here and stay calm until I get it done. And then I read a great quote uh, recently, again, so it wasn't the first time I had seen it, but it was approach something as Approach something like you only have 15 minutes, and it'll take all day. Approach something like you have all day, and it'll only take 15 minutes. That's true. It's <laughs> true. So, and I remember, uh, I don't remember whose quote that was, but I heard Al Dunning, uh, who's a horse trainer and a clinician. Yeah. He one time said, uh, take the time it takes so it doesn't take more time. Yeah. Right? And so these are sort of horse training quotes, but I sort of, you apply that to how I approach this Billy Cook thing. You know, I just was willing to grind it out and to get it done and to do whatever it took to get there. And, uh, you know, hopefully it will pay off for me for the moment. It's not spitting out any gold coins, but it's an incredibly gratifying exercise. Uh, and I remain very excited about it. And uh, you know, the money will come. It's not all about the money, like I said. Courses are my passion, and I'm getting to meet some really cool people. I'm, shit, I'm talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: <know? laughs> no, it's cool. It's, 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 uh...
1: it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a fun ride.
0: It just goes to show with all this, you touch on some great points, right? One, one I want to touch on is emotional overinvestment. Um, I used to, I learned it being an athlete growing up, right? You watch these guys that get so fired up because they made an exceptional player. They get so down because they failed themselves. And I always used to think, uh, I played baseball and, and I pitched the lion's share of my career. And I always used to think to myself, if I can get a hitter to think good or bad, if I can get them to think, I just won. Because right. all that time that you spent thinking is time that you're not spending trying to pick up whatever pitch I'm throwing, right? And right. and I've carried that through the lion's share of my life. That you can't get too high, you can't get too low. Uh, victories are great. Uh, I've always I've always kind of erred on the side of humility, where I, I don't really I'm not a huge fan of giving myself a pat on the back for nothing. If you set out a goal and you achieve it, then congratulations, you achieved it, right? That's what you're supposed right. to do. Now being a little older, I wish I would have celebrated some some more of those victories, maybe a little more, but. You know, in, in baseball, it is a game of failure. You know, you look at – you get three hits out of 10 at-bats, right? You're going to make make a run at a Hall of Fame career, right? That's a commendable career. Well, that means you've technically failed seven times sure. out of those 10. And uh, baseball being a game of failure taught me that, hey, you know, you didn't get it this time, but the most important pitch is the next one, right? So put all your energy, put all your focus into that and – just take things one, one day at a time. So I, I do try to stress to people, especially in working with horses, but in life in general, right? The the emotional overinvestment will expend more energy and you will lose more ground than if you try to stay as level-headed as possible. But in that pursuit, you really, really, really have to be conscientious of your emotional awareness, right? And you have to peel sure. back those layers and you've got to be willing to take on what might not have been viewed as a success, you know, as far as getting too happy or getting too down on yourself or beating yourself up i mean that it happens time and time over i'm i've been just as guilty as the next person but hopefully me falling on my face i can help prevent somebody else from doing the same or at least as many times as me
1: yeah well you do your part and pass those lessons along but uh you know i think that's part of what makes life fun and exciting and i i'm 36 years old now and i've done i've done a a lot of things never been Somebody who said no to any experience, really. I mean, in, in business and then working in the law, um, I don't shy away from anything. When I was, in, you know, I, I ran for town council when I was in law school. When I was in my early twenties, I mean, it's just, you know, yeah, awesome. I kind of have kind of have that personality, um, you know. But you can't get you can't sort of allow that to swell your ego when you have those successes, and you also, if you hit, if you have a failure. You can't allow that to define who you are. You know, yeah. like I got born in that office when I was thirty one years old. Okay. On to the next thing. You yeah. know what I mean? Like right, it was fun. It. I lo- I learned a lot and the people have spoken and you know, you just can't take <laughs> these things
0: personally. Yeah. Um and I, I Which is hard to do though. It's very hard to do. To well, separate right. yourself.
1: Exactly. That's where I was going. I mean at thirty six years old, it's easy now. Yeah. To, or easier yeah. to see that. Um in the moment then You know, there wasn't a lot of small the roses moments, as you say. wish you'd uh, taken the time to celebrate some of those victories more. I think I was too concerned with what people thought of me. You know, and part of that was my drive, right? So it was, you know, what people thought of me was motivating me to do these things and take these chances, and, and which created the opportunities and gave me these successes. But I also, you know, the highs were high and the lows were low. And now... I, you know, I'm at that point where, like, I just kind of want to do the things that make me happy that are sort of, uh, you know, more in line with who I am as a person and the things that I like to do that are, you know, intrinsically gratifying, not because of what anybody else thinks or ne- even necessarily because of the money that it pays me. I mean, obviously, we're going to be able to pay our bills and we're going to eat, and I want to be able to afford to keep my horses and, you know, go out to dinner once in a while. But yeah. it's just more about having some fun. Like I said, yeah. I have the Billy Cook saddles gave me a lot of really great memories, and you know I'm very lucky that I still have my father and my grandfather around, and you know my mom's around too, but she wasn't all too involved with the horses when I was a kid. Um, I'm very lucky to have them. Uh, but uh, my uncle Jeff is gone, and I, you know riding Billy Cooks with him was always, you know, we would joke around, and he would say, you know, the look is Billy Cook and things like this. <laughs> you know, yeah. So like I want to make a product that. People are able to build good memories around, and that makes me feel good. And so, you know, if we can be successful, it's, you know, my definition of success is not just being profitable. Yeah. You know, it's, it's continuing to make those things and, you know, helping to uh, perpetuate not only Billy's legacy, but sort of the Western equestrian lifestyle, which is also, we can't take that for granted, I don't think.
0: It's true, you know, and a lot of people panic about it being a dying, dying legacy or a dying culture. I don't think that's true one single bit. Uh, I think we just need to spend more time focusing on us as an industry and us as a whole and us as a culture, right? Sure. And kind of like you talked about with Billy Cook, right? Not necessarily being up with the times because when you're out working horses, you're out working cattle, you don't have time to be on Facebook. I mean, I get it all the time. How come you don't have more pictures of you and your horse? Well, if I'm riding my horse, I'm riding my horse. I'm not concerned with an Instagram post or or what my next tweet is going to be. Sure. But (laughs) Me neither. Right? But I think... (laughs) I think representative of the Western industry, we might need to let people in a little bit more in that regard right as far as you know internet business and and social media presence and content development I, we are short in that in that vein but uh, now we have every opportunity in the world I mean heck this podcast is is developed with a handful of equipment and probably less money than people think
1: yeah well you're doing a great job and it's important to get the message out there and it's an opportunity for people to connect and the one thing, I think that a lot of us, especially, you know, who ride horses and help horses uh, who live in rural areas, we got time to listen to podcasts when we yeah. drive. I mean, my, yeah. my, right now I'm working from home with the coronavirus and all that going on in the world, but uh, my drive to work is 45 minutes if there's no traffic, and it's yeah. longer if there is traffic because I got to live in a place. And keep Pierce in my backyard, and my office is, uh, you know, downtown in the Scottsdale. City. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful town, uh, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So this is, but this, you know, gives people the opportunity to connect. So I think it's a really cool thing that you're doing.
0: Heck yeah. Well, I appreciate your support and all this. And before we get towards the the end, I want to talk about your influence with Billy Cook. I know you talked about earlier, this is before uh, recording, you have some visions for the direction of the company and, and maybe some other endeavors you want to pursue. And if you don't mind sharing those, let's cover that now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I always want to make you know sort of our core product line up, which is going to be our saddles and our tack, and we are always going to be a saddle company as long as I'm around. You know, um, like I said, I, that that is my only hobby really, is my horses. I don't really do anything else in my free time, not that I have a ton of free time. <laughs> but not, that's you know. the truth, right? Right, but but I really, I mean, I, I, my girlfriend loves me, and she keeps a horse here, and you know, whenever we're not working, we're riding, and I try to ride a horse at least once a day, and you know, we got. Seven animals in the yard, and try to get at least every one. And I try to get every one of them ridden, you know, at least once a week. So, yeah, um, you know, that's my thing. But I also recognize that horses are not everybody's thing, and that people in our country, and you know, and I again, I grew up back east, and I spent a lot of time back in New York. Um, People are hungering for something authentically American. And I actually feel like that's part of what, you know, Donald Trump's success as a politician has been. Uh, And they don't from a consumer goods standpoint. I don't think they have that. I think that there's a a gaping void there. I mean, there is to some degree there's, you know, Ralph Lauren. Right. But uh, there's not something that's like classy and captures the spirit of America in the way in which I think we might be able to do with the Billy Cook brand. And where I'm going with that is, if you'll indulge me for a second, my mom, um, when I was growing up, she worked in high-end retail, and she sold all these expensive European brands. And the ones I'm going to name, Hermes, uh, Gucci, Fendi, uh, and Carolina Herrera, to name a few, those all started out as saddle companies before they started making handbags and wallets and, you know, I guess some fancy shoes and clothes now, too, even um, before they 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 b- rolled out those products. They were making saddles, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And we don't have a brand in the United States that, you know, is a heritage brand or is a legacy brand that started out making saddles. Before it started making things that people, you know, in suburban areas or in urban yeah,
2: areas, yeah, would right.
1: appreciate, <laughs> such as wallets and handbags and things. And, and the truth is, everybody in America carries either a purse or a wallet, right? I mean, I, I don't know, I don't have any friends who don't have wallets, and I don't know any women who don't have a purse or a no. wallet or both, right? Um, but they're not making, they're, there's not the opportunity to own one that sort of relates back to our heritage and our culture. And, uh, you know, I think that we can fill that void. I think that Billy Cook, we have the, the talented artisans who are able to tool the leather. We've got the sewing machines. Um, all we need is a little bit of creativity and uh, hopefully, you know, for business to be strong enough that we can afford to add uh, some hours to the schedule so that we can sort of play around with those things and, and um, try and develop some products that I think will have a broader appeal than just the equestrian community, and I think that's a, that'll be a good business move for us. Um, we'll be able to make more of these things and sell to more people because, like I said, everybody carries either a wallet or a purse. Not everybody needs a saddle.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think it's so, great. First and foremost, why not, right? If you're going to go, dream big. You might as well. Yeah, you don't absolutely. know unless you try, but I think it also touches on a little bit safer business practice, and, and you look at a lot of folks that just get so one-dimensional in their income that... When that is cut off, and this COVID response and quarantine is a perfect example, right? When that income is, is cut off, they, these people are stuck, yep. you know, and why not diversify the income a little bit, diversify the market, diversify the consumers for that exact reason that, you know, hey, you might take a take a, a back step to saddle sales for a little bit, right? The market falls off, whatever happens, you know, but you have sure. whatever collection, whether it be pushing more of the strap uh, strap leather goods or pushing the handbags or whatever the n- the next venture might be. I think it offers you a little bit better security in the long run from a, just from a business practice standpoint.
1: Yeah. Diverse, diversify your income stream, yeah. you know? And so, and I think we, I think we have what it takes to do that. <clears throat> and I'm excited about being able to do that. Um, like I said, I, I think people really are truly hungry for something that's authentically American, even for, Coronavirus and all this human thing to be manufactured in China. I think that people just really, they want that. They, they need that. And it's not out there. No. And uh, I don't see why not. And I think we can offer that to them. Um, and I think that the narrative behind our brand, the story of Billy Cook and how he pioneered this industry and, um, you know, how he did have... You know, some battles the way, and scrapes and bruises and still managed to hang on to the business and, and operate it up until the day he died. I think that really does lend itself to um, a strong presence um, and, the, and the product. You know, when people look at the maker's mark, there's that story behind it.
0: Yeah.
1: I think that they'll appreciate the history. So, Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: I haven't had the chance to roll that out yet. Um, like I said, I think the first year is sort of focusing on the fundamentals of the business, but that's my vision for it. I'd like to take it in that direction you know, sooner than later.
0: I think it's cool. I think it's really exciting. So, I think it's great. I think it's much needed. Thank you. Good stuff. So, as we wrap every show, uh, being that we're founded on freedom, right? A lot of this show is personal performance or human performance. Um, I always ask a question around freedom. So in your experience, whether it be personal or professional, right? What is a challenge or maybe a setback that you faced? How exactly did you overcome that? And what advice would you share with people who might be facing a similar challenge in their season of life?
1: Well, Challenge. Uh, I mean, we face challenges every day. Uh, You know, operating as an attorney, um, you know, I literally help people with their problems and with their challenges day in and day out. Um, me personally, probably some of the greatest adversity that I've ever I've ever faced was when I was on the town council in Cave Creek. There was a uh, local newspaper publisher who just hated my guts, and I, I don't need to belabor why, but it was unwarranted. Um, it was mean spirited, and it was. <laughs> I
0: was to say you mean yeah. the, you mean the media painting their own picture and lying. Well, you know, this, happen, right? this particular
1: guy <laughs> was, was vicious with his words, but chicken shit, in his character, yeah. if you will, Shocker. pardon the language.
2: Shocker.
1: And uh, <laughs> it was very tough because I was also at the same time at when, when all this was really erupting. Um, I was trying to build my career as a lawyer and I had, you know, just out of law school and I had to really kind of stay positive despite these personal attacks and despite this misinformation about me being spread and, you don't know in the local media and uh you know just kind of trying to keep that positive mindset and that can do attitude and and having the ability to not take things personally um is really what helped me get through that and one of the things that i've learned and you know i kind of touched on it earlier is that like as i get a little bit older it gets a little bit easier to put these things in the right perspective and and not let it you know cause me cost me any sleep But, but um the the things that people say and do that are negative are very seldom uh a consequence of anything that you have done wrong but it, almost always a reflection of an issue that's going on in that inside of that person yeah. that's beyond your that's control a great point. and so you know that would be my advice to people is that you know if someone comes at you whether you're a kid that's on the playground or at a, you know, a 4-H gym con or something like that, somebody says something negative to you or isn't being supportive of you, or if you're in the workplace and you know, one of your colleagues tries to cut you down and take credit for the work that you did or you know anything like that, uh, my advice to you is to just sort of keep your head high and uh, don't stoop to their level. And you know, It may not work out the way you wanted it to, but it will work out. Yeah, you'll you probably know, be at like, a lot better piece as a result. Yep, exactly. I mean, like I said, when I got voted off the council, that was sort of ups- very upsetting to me. Um, but I carried on and new and better opportunities emerged almost immediately thereafter. And um, I don't miss you a minute, you know, and um, I think my career has definitely benefited from it because all of the energy and attention that I have been putting into that uh, was now able to, you know, put into, you know, sort of growing my practice and serving my clients better. And my, I had developed some skill sets with that experience, but, uh, wasn't it really deploying them in a way that was financially beneficial? Yeah. So, um, you know, just whatever somebody's doing that's negative or nasty, you know, just don't take it personally. And then always try and take sort of the good with the bad.
0: Like so I tell people, consider the source right? Consider the source because yep. you don't know what they're going through. And, and I had that same experience, you know, when I was younger, I used to take it personally like you did. And it wasn't until later on that uh, I had that awareness to think, all right, well, what is going on between their ears? that yep. is making them think that this is a reasonable ba- way to respond, you know? And, yeah, and yeah, sometimes sometimes I was a result or, or sometimes I was the cause of the result, but uh, but oftentimes you're, you're not, right? There's other stuff going on in their life and they just happen to project it on you at that time. Totally, totally. And,
1: and then I guess as long as you're on the subject of adversity and how we get through it, uh, this coronavirus thing is really crazy. <laughs> it is. It is. And, uh, it is. you know, I just didn't get – you know, I'm talking to you because of this new venture, and I've sunk, you know, most of my money into this thing, <laughs> you no. know. Uh, and now it's on hold, and I don't know where it's going to go. Um, and I think that the best advice I can give – I mean, I, I don't know where I'm going to come out of it, but I know I'm going to be okay. Uh, I hope that the business is going to be successful, and that, that again, that doesn't just mean financially successful, although that is a big piece of it. Um, and I just remain confident of that because I'm not letting the negativity take over. I'm no. not afraid. Um, I'm doing taking whatever necessary precautions are. My dad is out here in Arizona. He's you know in his mid to late sixties, so I'm taking whatever precautions that I need to do when I go out. so That when I see him, I don't get him sick. You know, it's not that I'm worried about getting it, no. but you know what I mean? And, and you just kind of gotta be responsible. Um, the people that you work with and that you're around and even the people that are in your family, uh, colleagues, whoever you come in contact, everybody's dealing with this right now. Everybody. This situation is touching everyone. So try to be a little bit extra patient with people if you can. And sometimes that's easier said than done. Um, but, you know, ask them how they're doing before you get into business with them. If you, <laughs> if you have something you need to talk to them about, yeah. touch, touch, you know, Touch on who they are as a person first to make sure they're doing okay. Let them vent or get something off their chest before you dig right into business. I think that's healthy. Um, And it'll help your conversations when you do have to, you know, when you get to what you need to discuss, will be more productive because they won't be carrying around that baggage of whatever's troubling them about this situation in the moment.
0: It's true. So much of communication is people just A, they want to be heard, or B, they just need to get it off their plate. Yeah. Right. And once you can get through those weeds, you can find success.
1: Yeah, so that's sort of, I guess that's my best advice, and, you know, if you got a horse, ride it. (laughs) Heck yeah. In a Billy Cook saddle. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And and, uh, if you need one, uh, get in touch with us. We're at GenuineBillyCook.com and GenuineBillyCook on uh, Instagram, and uh, you can always Google my name, Adam Trank, to get a hold of me at the law firm. I'm at the Rose Law Group in Scottsdale, and, um, you know, we want to make sure that if you want a Billy Cook saddle, we get one to you, and... If you if you've got one that you need fixed, or if you know if you've got a question about, don't hesitate to reach out to us.
0: That's awesome, Adam. Well, I thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule, right, and making time for everybody here at Let Freedom Rain Podcast. It's been great getting to know you and understanding this Billy Cook uh, uh, acquisition that happened late last year, and we're excited for the future, man. It's it's great to see you starting to put a little foundation to this, and then not only develop that foundation, but but try to add a few more layers to it uh, to be able to accommodate the market.
1: I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to speak to you and, uh, to be heard by your audience and, uh, get to know you a little bit as well. And I look forward to maybe riding with you someday.
0: Heck yeah. We're we're down in Arizona every now and again. So if I uh, stop through Scottsdale, man, I'll give you a ring. Please do. I'll look forward to it. All right, brother. You take care. You too. Take care. Bye bye. Hey, thanks for riding along with another episode of Let Freedom Reign podcast and being part of our freedom family. If you want to provide greater support of this show, visit patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Reign podcast. That's P A T R E O N dot com forward slash let freedom reign podcast. And rain is spelled R E I N. There you can provide a donation, and it costs less than the fancy cup of coffee you're probably holding, to help us produce free weekly content. For collaborations, to book us as a guest for your next event, or to make guest recommendations, email us at info.lfrpodcast at gmail.com. For the most up-to-date information on Let Freedom Reign, visit our Facebook and Instagram page at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Additionally, you can find us on Twitter at Let Reign underscore. We cannot thank you enough for being our most loyal listeners, and we'll see you on the next one.